0: The content of this podcast is based on medical fact and evidence based practice from credible authoritative sources, but is not a substitute for your institution's policies, procedures, common sense, or good judgment. The views and opinions are those of Eric Bauer and Flight Bridge Ed in their entirety. This is the Flight Bridge Ed podcast critical care and emergency medicine education for nurses and paramedics. Here's your host, Eric Bauer. Hey everybody, welcome back. I wanted to take a short time and I wanted to kind of do a podcast that focuses on how to read a trial, how to read a study. Um, I've had a couple emails and I've discussed this in depth uh, regarding doing a podcast like this on the Second Shift podcast and my wife had actually come to me. About six months ago, and had recommended that we try to do a podcast and and teach or or try to kind of guide people down the right path of how to read a study and and what do all these uh, different terms mean? What do the statistics mean? Um, How do you interpret those things? So, I found actually a really cool paper uh, that I will put in the show notes. And again, remember the show notes, you have to actually go to the actual website which is Uh find the podcast that we're talking about. So this podcast, um, I'm going to name it How to Read a Clinical Trial Paper. The actual paper I came across is titled real similarly to that, and it's uh, How to Read a Clinical Trial Paper, A Lesson in Basic Trial Statistics. So I'm going to, it's quite a long paper. I'm going to try to kind of hit the high points and talk about um, different things we want to look at based on how we apply this to our field, our, our, our kind of subset of medicine. It uh, shouldn't take too long. We'll try to do this in uh, 15 or 20 minutes. Again, if you have any questions, if you ever have any ideas for podcasts, always feel free to reach out to me, email me, and um, I'll try to, um, you know, I respond very, very quickly. I try to respond within 24 hours. And we will try to do something based on your your idea. So again, the the podcast title is "How to Read a Clinical Trial Paper." Oftentimes, we we forget the the magnitude and the importance of research and the research out there. And if you've listened to our podcast for any some time, I mean, you know that uh, I started Flat Bridget based on just trying to disseminate that information to the to, to these rural areas to try to broaden the pre hospital environments understanding of cutting edge medicine. Um, I don't think that we should have a big you know, gap like we see in some areas of medicine. Um, we should be trying to do the most cutting edge um, based on research and evidence and try to bring that high level critical care, ICU level care to the streets and to the HEMS environment, to the pre-hospital environment. So we have to be able to read these studies and articulate and understand what they mean. So the first thing that we should always be looking at is first understand how the research results apply to the clinical practice. Does this study apply to my practice? Does this study apply to my patients? Oftentimes, you know, one of my mentors, uh, actually one of my, my direct boss, um, he often will, will ask me, you know, or say, you know, does the anesthesia literature, does it correlate with pre-hospital medicine. And even though we can look at some of the things that anesthesia does and we can say, yeah, they RSI their patients, does it always fit the pre-hospital environment? And and the answer is no. So we've got to be able to look at the study and we have to say, does this apply to our setting? That's very, very important. Number two, did the study do a good job applying similar patients with regards to population, demographics, disease types, and severity? Or were the patients all over the place? I think that's, that's also very, very important. Do you have a group of patients that, um, can all be looked at? They're all similar. Their, their severity scale is, is the same. Um, and can we, can we look at that sample size, that population and know that we have consistency, Another thing that we want to look at is what's called the dropout rate. Obviously, in any trial, you have patients that are going to drop out. Um, We're going to talk about the different types of trials. But was the dropout rate, was it clinically significant? Was that a big deal? Why did they drop out? You know, did they drop out because the treatment was more effective than the placebo? Or did they drop out because there was no difference? Obviously, if you had a dropout rate that was high because that treatment was more effective than the placebo, then we know that that is clinically significant. The other thing we have to always make sure of is if you do have a dropout rate, are all the subjects accounted for in the analysis? You know, even if they drop out after a short period, they should still be counted for the analysis during the treatment arm. And that's something that the the paper should... Discuss it should talk about. So, what are the different types of trials or studies that you may read? Um, I've got a couple that uh, that we'll just talk about, kind of the main ones. The first one is a randomization, a randomized trial, and basically a randomized trial. What that means is, is you have two different kind of treatment arms, and these patients are assigned by chance. So, this is a random assigning process. Based on each patient, the clinical uh, supervisors, the clinical people that are that are kind of doing this study, they have no idea. Uh, everything is random. Everything is by chance, and this brings objectivity. This brings um, consistency. Another type is called a blinding study, and basically, a blinding study is um, the the patient is unaware of are they getting a placebo or are they getting um, the real medication, a double blinding study means that the patient and the clinical staff, neither of them know if they're getting a medication or a placebo. One such study right now that's going on is the actual TXA study that the resuscitations outcome consortium is actually conducting on traumatic brain injuries. And we've talked about this on the second shift podcast. Um, but that is basically, do they get a placebo or do they, get, do they get TXA? And then we have retrospective. A retrospective look is basically a look back. One of the studies that I'm actually just about to start, which is going to be a big study, is we're going to look at um, a certain volume of, of charts, flight volume, and we're going to try to assess based on looking at those charts, pulling the data, uh, evaluating that data, to try to come up with an assumption based on past events, past flights. So that's a retrospective look. So as we said, we first have to understand the research. We have to understand how it applies to our clinical practice. Does it apply to our patient types? And overall, what was the clinical response? What was the response of the study? So there's a term called intention to treat analysis. And that goes back to that dropout rate. And I kind of talked about it before. We need to identify the intention to treat analysis. And essentially, again, if you have patients that drop out, they've got to be counted in the trial. That's very, very important. So be looking for that when you're reading a trial. If they say, you know, that we had 10% of the patients drop out for this, this, and this, um, but they don't count them in the trial, You know, you need to ask a question, why did they, did they not? Was it going to skew the numbers? Um, Did they not like how it made the numbers look? Does the study matter? Does the study matter? Is it, is it reproducible? Could you reproduce the same type of study and is it accurate? So how was the study scored? And we know that we have different scoring kind of criteria one such study that we've talked about in the past and I've had many emails on is the actual paper done by John Sackles and all his colleagues at University of Tucson and where they looked at the mortality benefits or lack thereof of paralytics in traumatic brain injury patients and they used a severity score. And so that severity score was very, very important when you look at the end results in uh, uh, the less s- severe patients They had a very low uh, um, difference in morbidity and mortality based on whether the the patient was given succinylcholine or rocuronium but the high severity patients those patients actually had a very high change a very high mortality rate when when given succinylcholine so how was the study scored what type of index did they use we know that we're really good at evaluating glasgow coma scale as far as the glasgow coma scale has a, has a very good measurement. But us as clinicians, we're not very good at assessing patients' Glasgow Coma Scale. Um, when they actually started the, the pre-trial um, aspects of the traumatic brain injury and TXA study, they identified that as clinicians, we're really good at three different Glasgow Coma Scales. And I talked about this before, and Mike Verkest said this, is that we were good at three, 14, and 15 So utilizing Glasgow Coma Scale as an index was a very important training aspect prior to launching this study. So is that something that you can utilize as a good measurement? So that's something we want to look at on any study. What index score, what type of scoring criteria did they use? And in the end, what are the results? Were the results um, statistically significant without being clinically meaningful. What does that mean? Oftentimes you'll have a study that will show benefit early on. It may show benefit at, at two hours, three hours, six hours. Um, I believe, and, and I, I'd have to, you know, this is just going off the top of my head. When you look at the proper trial, when we're looking at massive transfusion, um, if I remember correctly, you know, on the the early um, kind of assessments, they showed a positive. Uh, reduction, um, or uh, or the patients actually responded well when given the one-to-one-to-one. But when they evaluated the study from the perspective of what was the 30-day morbidity mortality rate, or you may see a study that shows, you know, what is the time to readmission. And so when you look at studies like that, was it clinically meaningful? And that's what it's looking at. Even though you may see a change early on, at that 30-day mark or 28-day mark, some studies will do 28, some will do 30, oftentimes medicine and studies, research, they're graded or looked at from that perspective, that 28 to 30-day mortality rate. If there's no change, if, if whether you gave this medication or didn't give this medication, the mortality benefit was exactly the same, is that clinically meaningful? So again, you need to look at the, the, the study from that perspective. Was the measurement validated? So we we want to look at measures of all aspects of the disease. We want to make sure that again, were the the numbers accurate? Um, could you reproduce this if you if you wanted to? So another thing to consider is what's called primary outcomes. Do you have a a difference in readmission of our patients based on a study? Um, you know, does the study reduce readmissions by, you know, two months? Or does the study basically uh, not change 28 to 30 day mortality? Those are things that we have to look at, again, based on is this clinically significant? So you could have a study that statistically shows favor, but it, is it clinically significant for overall outcomes? And oftentimes studies are graded off of those longer outcomes like that. A study may show very, very good um, uh, numbers early on in a treatment kind of algorithm, but at that 28 to 30 day mortality measurement, there's no change. So we have to always evaluate. Yes, it shows positive um, progress maybe early on, but there's no change at that 30 day. Is that clinically significant? So it's something to always consider. That doesn't mean that the study's not valid. It doesn't mean that the study doesn't show potential but we always want to kind of look at look at it from that perspective. Another thing is what's called surrogate outcomes. So essentially surrogate outcomes are based on biomarker levels. This doesn't look at the overall study. So I, basically if we look at this, a glaring example of misuse of surrogate markers was the use of a class one antiarrhythmic medication to prevent sudden cardiac death based on evidence that their medication suppresses the number of uh, PVCs. Previous research had shown a correlation between PVCs and poor clinical outcomes. However, a prospective randomized trial comparing these drugs to placebo showed an increased risk of cardiac death in the treatment arm despite successful suppression of PVCs. Such faulty reasoning likely led to many deaths and is a lesson of the importance of surrogate outcome choices. So essentially what that means is, is if we just look at medication and we know that this medication, and I'll give you, we'll throw an example out there. We know that with any bifascicular block, any bifascicular block, if if a patient is throwing PVCs or for that matter, they're having runs of triplets or small runs of VTAC, we never want to treat that, especially with lidocaine. We don't want to give that medication. But if we looked at it from the perspective of, all right, we're going to give an antirhythmic for PVCs and we don't go through and we don't diagnose what this underlying rhythm is. And we're just utilizing, all right, this medication will suppress this type of rhythm, but we don't know, you know, is it causing other issues? And We don't look at it from a study perspective. We just look at the numbers. This is a great example of not looking at something systemically and identifying, yeah, the numbers may show that this is good. These biomarker levels may show that it's beneficial, but what happens when you actually put it in place in clinical practice? So that's something to always consider. Another thing to kind of consider is what's called continuous outcomes and time-to-event endpoints. So we'll go through a few different statistical um, kind of measurements that are very, very important. And if you've never taken probability and statistics, um, you're probably saying, thank God, uh, I can tell you it was brutal. And if you don't use it, you you forget a lot of it. And so the first definitions we're going to talk about is called a null hypothesis. Null hypothesis is, in a statistical test, the hypothesis that there is no significant difference between specified populations any observed differences being due to sampling or experimental error. So basically we're, we're just saying that everything is gonna be done on the up and up. There's not gonna be any differences based on, you know, race, gender, anything like that, how we're gonna um, take the data, collect the data, and so on and so forth. The next value we're gonna talk about is what's called the p-value. A p-value indicates the size of an effect. So strong evidence means big effect. A large p-value means the null hypothesis is true or provides evidence to support the null hypothesis. If the p-value is small, the null hypothesis must be false. So what you're looking for is you're looking for that p-value, that p-value number. And that p-value, if it's large, you want that greater than 0.05 or 5%. If the p-value is small, you want that equal to or less than 0.05. We also want to make sure we understand that the p-value can be kind of not always correct. So you want to make sure that you look at a couple other things. The first thing is correlation. Correlation refers to the extent to which two variables have a linear relationship with each other. Another term we're gonna look at is what's called confidence interval. Confidence intervals are constructed at a confidence level, such as 95% selected by the user. Well, what does this mean? This means that if the same population is sampled on numerous occasions and intervals, estimates are made on each occasion. The resulting intervals would bracket the true population parameter in approximately 95% of the cases. So it's saying that if we did that same study, We utilize the same data, the same process that in 95% of the cases, the results are going to be the same. It's a confidence interval. Tells you that we're we're likely to have the same data. So let's look at a couple examples. Don't just always look at the p-value like I said. That p-value can kind of be skewed. So look at the correlation itself and its confidence interval. Again, we want to try to have that confidence interval at that 95%. That's the goal. So let's say we have a correlation of 90% with a confidence interval of 85 to 95%. That would be an excellent uh, kind of data source. That would give you high confidence that this study um, had validity and was done correctly and could be reproducible. In contrast, if you had a correlation of 23% with a confidence interval between 1 and 57%, that would be a bad data point. You would not maybe have confidence in that study. A study that reports a correlation and gives a p value but not a confidence interval means you should always have caution. So you always want to see the correlation, you want to see the confidence interval. And then the p-value last correlation, confidence interval are the two things you need to focus on. And the last thing, and something I just talked about kind of briefly in the beginning is look at the sample size, right? I think that's the thing is this study have some, some basis. Does it have some weight to it? Was this study 10 patients? Was this study hundred patients? Or was this study greater than 20,000 patients? Like we saw with the crash two study right, anything that's got substance, it's got a huge sample size, a huge population, obviously that data is going to be more um, pronounced. It's going to have strength to it, whether it's positive or negative for what the null hypothesis was. It's telling you that you have a pretty good idea based on the larger population. So a large population, the larger the population, um, I think you can kind of give more weight to the study. As I said, I'm going to post this in the show notes. I encourage you to read the article. Um, I thought it was well done. And, uh, you know, this is something you're going to have to practice. You're going to have to read a lot of studies and just kind of apply these things. And I think once you start doing it, uh, you hopefully will have a better understanding of what you're reading. Um, You can form opinions and hopefully become better at uh, differentiating between a good study. that has got some... Got some backing or a study that may not merit um, our attention. Uh, as I said, if you ever need anything, uh, reach out to me. My, remember my emails, is eric.bauer at flybridgeend.com. Um, and uh, if you're looking for a review class, we've got lots and lots scheduled. I appreciate uh, everybody reaching out and uh, we look forward to meeting you and talking to you soon. This has been a production of the Flight Bridge Ed Podcast, leading the way in pre-hospital critical care and emergency medicine education.